Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue in America. Hi, I'm Suzanne Lasser, and this is Bilingual in America. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of working with Dr. Devin Nahr. Dr. Nahr is a professor of Sephardic Studies, the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. He is also the founder and chair of Sephardic Studies and has established the largest archive in the United States of historical and literary texts in Ladino. He is a leading scholar on Jews of the Ottoman Empire and their descendants here in America. So I'd like to give a wonderful welcome to you, Professor Nahr, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So we've had many guests on Bilingual in America, and today's topic is unique in that it is one of those low incidence languages with deep historical roots. And I'm um, going to let you start by sharing for our listeners a little bit about who you are, and let's say in terms of language and culture, culture and how they play such a, a large role in your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, I grew up in, in the walls of my home was a monolingual family of English. Um, but when I went outside into my broader family environment, my father's family are Sephardic Jews, and they are from Salonika, which is in today in Greece, but had been in part of the Ottoman Empire for many centuries, and it was once home to the largest of the Ladino-speaking uh, Jewish communities in the entire uh, world. And so I heard this language called Ladino or Judeo-Spanish when I was growing up, and it sounds a lot like Spanish. And actually in my family and among many of the Sephardic Jews who came to the United States, they just called it Spanish. But when you interact with people who speak like what we might call more normative varieties of Spanish, you discover, well, it's not exactly the same because there are a lot of other kind of linguistic influences that make it different. But having Ladino on the ear, you know, people spoke to spoke around me in Ladino. In synagogue, we use Ladino and Hebrew as well. But nobody ever really spoke to me in Ladino. It was not my mother tongue, but, you know, my grandparent tongue, so to speak. And But it was it was a language that really made an impact on me and I think led me immediately in school to study romance languages, especially Spanish right away, because it was, you know, it was it was readily accessible. So uh, clearly it did have a lasting impact and not only, you know, helped to develop your love of languages and culture, but really I think it's probably a driving force between, um, behind much of your professional work, which we're, we're going to get into a little bit later. But let's first start with um, having you share for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with Ladino, um, what it is, how it came to be, and maybe touch upon some of the linguistic influences. I think our listeners may be a little more familiar, familiar with Yiddish when we think about Jews, right? But that's more particular to Ashkenazi, Eastern European Jews. So if you can just share a little bit, that would be helpful. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a starting point is, you know, 1492, that year of Columbus's expeditions to the Americas and the, you know, the inauguration of the colonization of 
the American continents and of displacement of indigenous people, that same year was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. And there was once a very large and important Jewish community there in not only in uh, you know what we now call Spain, but in Castilla and Aragon and all the different kingdoms. And many of those Jews who were expelled, they fled across the Mediterranean and received a welcome within the framework of the Ottoman Empire, which was had its capital in Istanbul and Constantinople. But it it spanned from uh, the Bal- Greece and the Balkans, the parts of North Africa to what is today Turkey, and going into uh, into the Middle East. And Jews in those contexts, especially in the Balkans and Turkey, they established their own communities when they arrived, and they were able to continue to speak this Iberian origin language that they wound up combining and forming a basically new language. So when Jews came from Aragon and they were speaking like Aragonese, and those came from Castilla and they were speaking Castilian, those different regional languages of the Iberian Peninsula were mixed together with Castilian being the dominant one and Portuguese influence was added on. And then because they were Jews, there was an important Hebrew and Aramaic component and the language like Yiddish was historically written in Hebrew letters. And because of the contact with the surrounding cultures in the Eastern Mediterranean, the language like a sponge absorbed linguistic elements from those surrounding communities. So there's an important influence from Turkish, Greek, Arabic, Italian, French. And so when we think about Ladino, which is a term itself invoking the Latin roots of the term, sometimes it's called Judeo-Spanish, meaning like a Jewish-Spanish, but even that only represents two of the many features of the language, which is really a kind of a a pan-Mediterranean, Ottoman, Balkan, you know, uh, bridge-building language. I mean, one scholar at the beginning of the 20th century referred to Ladino as the Mediterranean Esperanto because it was kind of a language that had elements and influences of all of the surrounding languages that made it immediately slightly a little bit intelligible from one neighbor to the next. So with that being said, do you see parallels between, let's say, Yiddish and Ladino in terms of the diaspora communities? Absolutely. I mean, you know, in in Yiddish, Yiddish means Jewish. And in Ladino, there was once a time in which Ladino speakers also referred to their language as Jewish, as Judeo or as Judesmo. And in the Ottoman context of the Ottoman Empire, when the Ottoman authorities, these are the Muslim authorities in the Ottoman Empire, when they were referring to the Jewish language, Yahudija, they did not mean Hebrew, they meant this Jewish-Spanish language. And so in that regard, both of these are diasporic Jewish languages that are rooted in one geography. In the case of Yiddish, it's rooted in Central Europe and in, in, in German that was transplanted to Eastern Europe and uh, absorbed many influences from Slavic languages and the context there, whereas Ladino had a bit of a greater distance to travel from one end of the Mediterranean to the other, and similarly was a language that was transplanted that then absorbed the influences of the surrounding culture. So in that regard, you know, these were languages that reflected the particularities of the Jewish community. They were synonymous, synonymous with Jewish identity, and they continued to develop and thrive and flourish for hundreds of years, really until the 20th century 
in both of those contexts of the Balkans and Middle East in the context of Ladino and uh, Eastern Europe in the context of Yiddish. So as you're talking, I'm just thinking about all of the, the migration patterns that we see, and I'm going to actually uh, you know, cross over and bring us out of Europe and into um, America. And one of the things that I had read in preparation for our time together was that, as you know, we're based out of New York and you're originally from New Jersey. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about the Sephardic community and the roots that they developed in what we today call Spanish Harlem. Yeah, well, so, you know, when when Sephardic Jews are coming to the United States from the Ottoman Empire, from the Balkans in the beginning of the 20th century, it's around the time of World War I when the Ottoman Empire is coming undone and there's there's war, there's political transformation, economic instability, and folks are looking for new opportunities. And that's when the uh, large, well, relatively large, but still quite small <laughs> community of Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews arrives in New York. We're talking about maybe no more than 60,000. So not that big of a group, but you know, uh, especially when you think about like 2 million Yiddish-speaking Jews from Eastern Europe. So quite small number. But they came in a very concentrated and short period of time right around World War I, and they settled largely initially in New York. On the Lower East Side was one place, but Harlem was also another place. That's where my family first arrived, first settled when they came in 1924. And they arrived in Harlem. And one of the dynamics that was really fascinating in the context of Harlem was that Ladino-speaking Jews were quite prevalent in that in that area, like 114th, 115th, 116th Street, Madison Avenue, this area. According to the literature that's out there, including some of the memoirs of some of the leading Puerto Rican activists, for example, that came to Harlem in the beginning of the 20th century, my family was a late arrival to this community. But according to those memoirs, one of the reasons that Puerto Ricans wound up settling in Harlem in such large numbers was because they already found people who were speaking Spanish there, by whom they meant Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews. And you can imagine the phenomenon, which is discussed, by the way, in the Ladino newspapers of New York, which the Ladino newspapers in New York have a sense of, you know, these people are like us. They speak Spanish. We're part of this Spanish-speaking uh, set of communities. But at the same time, the Ladino newspapers are like, but they're not Jewish. So, so beware in terms of developing romantic relationships. The reason that they had to do that, by the way, was precisely because romantic relationships were developing across those communal lines. And it's something that was discussed quite a lot. And it's not only in terms of romantic relationships that were developed, but perhaps even more significantly, cooperation around labor organizing, around strike organizing, around radical politics. The, in the Communist Party, for example, in New York, in the first third of the 20th century, were more, mostly Sephardic Jews and Puerto Ricans in the Spanish language branch you know, they, of the Communist Party. They were there working together. They were there organizing for rights. They were there organizing strikes. They were there giving uh, talks on the, on the soapbox together as a kind of a shared Spanish-speaking communities. I'm getting such a rich lesson in history and uh, it, it's adding in information that uh, really up until now had not been part of my own understanding about 
not only just the Jewish experience in terms of the Sephardic and Latino aspects, but also of the, you know, the settling in New York as the part of the overall immigrant experience. I'm not surprised to hear that there was this uh, connection and overlap because when people live close to one another and there is a common interest and even a shared language Mm -hmm. and some traditions, then it's only natural that uh, those connections are are going to be established. Yeah. And by the way, you're not alone. I mean, nobody, nobody knows about this history precisely because the Sephardic Jews were illegible by American context because people couldn't figure them out. Were they Jewish? If they were Jewish, why didn't they speak Yiddish, right? But if but are they Spanish? If they're Spanish, why are they not from Spain? Or why are they not from Mexico? Are they Greek? But if they're from Greece or they're from Turkey, why don't they speak Turkish or Greek? So it they were kind of a, a puzzle for the you know surrounding society. And even even when they encountered other Spanish speakers, you know, there are funny jokes that go around. Say, well, when you know, when uh, when Argentine cinema came to the Balkans in Turkey, for example. All the Jews went to the movie theaters thinking that these were Jewish movies because for them, Jewish was Spanish and Spanish was okay. Jewish. And so then when they come to New York, they, they're in Harlem. They see, oh, all these people, they're speaking Spanish. Well, the Puerto Ricans, they say they must be Jewish because for them, it was impossible to imagine somebody speaking Spanish or Spanish-based language that wasn't Jewish because where they come came from in the Eastern Mediterranean, the only people speaking a variety of Spanish were Jews. So Spanish became Jewish and Jewish became Spanish. And that became part of the basis for confusion, but also bonds of friendship, bonds of solidarity, bonds of, uh, of, of kinship. Like even my family's apartment in Harlem, I looked at the 1925 New York City census. The only people in the apartment were Sephardic Jews and Puerto Ricans, and that's it. <laughs> Well, they, you know, shared space, shared language, yeah. and uh, I'm sure there definitely was some sharing of food as well, right? Recipes, sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. and and so the the tradition continues, as with, I think, many of us, right? We really recognize and value the importance of emerging bilinguals and maintaining uh, more than one language, and so. Oftentimes, we'll talk with guests about what they do to really try to develop that love of language and continue that legacy with their children. And I know that you are working diligently on teaching your children Ladino. And so maybe you can tell us a a little bit about why you see this as important and how you view Ladino as a language that potentially builds bridges. I think that, you know, my family and it's a story that's shared by many immigrants coming to the country that they felt deep pressure to, you know, assimilate, to abandon their language and to adopt English, unaccented English even. And I saw that this was a sacrifice that my forebears had to make in order to advance in society to the extent that they could. That was a great loss from my perspective because I was not exposed in the way that I might have been in a previous generation to the richness of expressions, of refranes, of all of the different uh, cantikas, of the songs, and of the music, and an entire universe 
that was out there that I only got the tiny little taste of. Uh, before I d- dove into this world and into this language, I could have given you some expressions of greeting. I, and I could have given you some food words. And I could have given you a few curse words because those are important. And those are, you know, really words of self-defense. You need to have those. And I could have given you some prayer in in Ladino, but I wasn't fully immersed in it. And I, I saw that as a kind of a great loss, you know, a great loss, because there's so much knowledge and so much about different perspectives on the world that are encoded in our in our very language. And when you lose that language, and I think something special about Ladino, because it brings together all of these different languages, we really lose a set of perspectives on the world that we might not otherwise have access to. And so in college, when I began to immerse myself more in in our history and our culture, trying to explain to myself and actually to my classmates in college, they say, Nar, what kind of name is that? They say, oh, well, you know, well, I say, actually, it's a Hebrew name. So it's a Hebrew name. Why do you have a Hebrew name? And I said, well, I'm Jewish. I said, well, where are you from? I said, well, I'm I'm from Greece and Turkey. And they said, what do we Greek? You know, it's the same thing, but originally from Spain, you know, it's a whole, you cannot, there's not a short way to explain it really. And I started to ask my nono, which my abuelo, but we use the Italian origin word, nono to refer to grandfather and nona for grandmother. And I said, no, no. I said, why don't you speak to me in, in Ladino? And I we started on the phone speaking in Ladino on a regular basis. And uh, his Ladino was a little bit rusty at the time because he hadn't spoken on a regular basis in a number of years. And we joked that we spoke kind of Ladinglish, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mixing together Ladino and English when we fill in. And then I wound up going to his native city, Salonika in Greece. And I spent a year there. And before I knew Greek, I was interviewing the older people in the community in in Ladino. This was the this was our only common language, and I really developed my sense of speaking and uh, and understanding there. And so, among Ladino speakers, when I speak Ladino, they will tell me I speak Salonika and Ladino because they're different dialects. In Istanbul, they say it like this, and in Salonika, they say it like that, just like any other language. And so, I felt that you know this is. This is part of my inheritance that has been essentially swiped from me. It's been stolen from me because of the coercive pressure of assimilation in the United States and also because of the devastation of the Holocaust that destroyed many of the Ladino-speaking communities in Greece. My grandfather's brother, for example, and his family were deported to Auschwitz and uh, where they were murdered. And we don't think about Greece when we think about the Holocaust. We don't think about Ladino when we think about the Holocaust. But these are also parts of the story. And there's nobody left, you know, essentially speaking the language. And when I went to graduate school to write about this history, the understanding was this is kind of a culture that we're going to study Ladino kind of like it's like Latin. You know, it's going to be a written language. It's a language of the past. The only people who speak it are 80 years older, 80 years or older, whatever. And you know what? I decided I would like to go further than that. I'd like to think about the Ladino as a, as a living language. That led me when I had my children, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, to see little experiment. I'll try to speak to them in my lingua nona, in my grandparent tongue and see how far I could get. And actually, the pandemic was helpful in a certain way because they were constantly with me and they didn't have exposure to, you know, so much English in other contexts. So we were speaking Ladino uh, and it was really, really remarkable. So those are, that's another, that's a perfect example, right, of uh, the silver lining of what yeah. came out of the pandemic. 
And it's so funny to hear you, you know, say uh, that, that, you know, led English, right? Because it's true, right? We talk about Spanglish, we, every, it, it just happens. Right. However, it really is um, part of the, I think, the ongoing evolution of language, right? right. When there is overlap. And listening to part of me is, you know, uh, envious because similar to your experience with Ladino, the same thing was true with Yiddish, right? My grandparents, uh, my my father, they speak Yiddish. My mother understood, but they never taught us. And right. um, it, it is essentially lost now on me and my brother. And so, you know, yes, I can read, you know, some, some prayers in Hebrew, uh, yeah. but I don't have conversational language. And the most I have in Yiddish are, you know, endearing terms. Right. Uh, that, right. That are used. So it's so important. I think it's great that you are really passing that on to your children that yeah. uh, to have some continuity and well it's like it's the continuity after rupture though that's the thing because it's not i mean i had to i had to reclaim this language in a certain way you know and so my children it's fascinating to see my children and my father get together because my father grew up in a ladino speaking environment but he never he claims he, you know he doesn't he can't really speak ladino but he understands a lot and seeing him interact with my two kids, it reveals that he knows way more than he even thought he did. He just going into the deep recesses of his memory, he can pull out, you know, different words and expressions that really light up my kids' eyes. It surprised him and make me I just thrilled, you know, where my children, I mean, think about that. My children can be teaching their grandparents his own language, essentially. I mean, that's really a remarkable phenomenon and one that I can't uh, emphasize enough the value of that and just the marvel of it. That's pretty amazing that you reclaimed what was almost extinct in your family line and you yeah. are you know, bringing that forward. It's um, interesting. There's this New York has a um, and their sixth annual Ladino Day, which is coming mm -hmm. up at the end yeah. of January, on the 29th. And the theme for this year is, will Ladino rise again? And mm -hmm. I think that what you've just shared with us uh, confirms that it is possible uh, because each action that is taken contributes to the ongoing life and evolution or continuity of that language. Yeah. Clearly your research and love of Ladino is personal. And I know that in 2016, you um, published a book called Jewish Alonica. If you could share a bit about how that came to be um, and what the book talks about for our listeners. Yeah. So in that book, what I tried to do was uncover the story of the Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jewish community of Salonika, which, as I mentioned, was the largest of Ladino-speaking communities uh, from the, you know, basically 1492 until World War II, so over 400 years. And it was, you know, over half the population of the city, which is now in Greece, the second biggest city in Greece, the Saloniki, were Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews. I mean, if you can imagine, it's really remarkable. The Jews were so influential in the city that the, the entire port and commerce closed down in observance of the Jewish Sabbath. I mean, it was it was referred to as the Jerusalem of the Balkans or the Shabbatopolis, the city of the Sabbath. <laughs> and Jews could be found in all different aspects of the society. They were not sequestered into this ghetto or that or these professions and that professions. The people 
when you arrive at the port, the dock workers were Jews and the postal people in the post office were Jews and the people shining your shoes or selling lemonade and pumpkin seeds on the street and the journalists and the Jews were in all aspects of society, which made it a very unusual place. What I wanted to do was to capture a sense of that world on the eve of the Holocaust, not focus on the destruction itself because we can spend a lot of time and we tend to focusing on destruction, annihilation, mass murder, and the mourning. But I wanted to see what was the life that was lost there. And I wanted to see how did the people who lived in that city understand their world? What were their problems? What were their aspirations? What were their ideas about what their future was going to be? That may not, was not material, did not materialize because of the Holocaust, but to try to recapture their humanity in a certain sense and to understand it in their own terms. So what that meant was trying to uncover their voices in Ladino. And while there had been some scholarship about this city and about Sephardic Jews, a lot of it was written from the outside perspective looking in. So a traveler would come from France and he'd say, oh, there were Jews here and he'd write in French. So what it looked like, it was like this and like that. Uh, or the uh, British consul would write a report. Uh, the Jewish communities like this. I said, well, what did the Jews themselves have to say? And what did the poor Jews who were working at the uh, tobacco factories have to say about it? And what did the people who were running the factories have to say about it? And what did the, the rabbi have to say about it? And so in, to do that, I wanted to delve into the Ladino language sources, which nobody had done before, in part because it seemed like they had all been lost. Because the Nazis had come into the city, and before they deported all of the Jews to Auschwitz, they confiscated the records of the community, and it was believed that they had all been lost. I was able, through a uh, circuitous route, to uncover vast uh, caches of these documents hiding in a in an old building in uh, in Salonika itself. Some other stuff wound up in Moscow in the secret military archive. Stuff wound up in uh, in New York City, actually. And so I went to all these places and gathered the records, some stuff in Jerusalem and the newspapers. And I tried to to reconstruct the world of Salonika's Jews as they articulated and expressed it in the Ladino language in a very rich and multifaceted picture of a dynamic community in transition uh, emerges from, uh, from those sources and uh, brings life and voices to an otherwise lost world. So it's almost as if you were a treasure hunter going all over the world to get these little pieces and putting them together. And uh, as we say, may their memories be a blessing. And what you're doing is bringing a very personal side and a celebratory lens to, yeah. as you said, oftentimes is just viewed uh, in a very tragic state instead. Yeah. yeah, I'm also curious about what you're currently working on. You know, what are you most excited about or engaged in in terms of both preserving and educating those in the U.S. on Ladino? Well, I, I have two main projects right now that I'm working on. One is, you know, Ladino is not still not a well-known language uh, or culture in the United States or beyond. And even less well-known is the range of literature, oral literature and written literature and the, the genres. And so one of the things that transpired when I began my job 
uh, as a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle is that Seattle happens to be home to one of the largest Ladino speaking communities in the country, Ladino origin communities in the country. Um, most of those families came from what is now Turkey and the island of Rhodes. And when I arrived and people found out that I could read Ladino, as I mentioned, Ladino historically was written in Hebrew characters and even a special Sephardic style of Hebrew that if you study Hebrew at school today, or if you go to Israel, the script looks completely different. It looks more like Arabic, which has to do with the local influence. So a lot of people could understand Ladino or they had Ladino uh, books or documents that they found from that they inherited from their their parents or the grandparents. And so when I arrived, people started to bring in, bring in these materials, really amazing things. One gentleman in his 90s brought me a document and it said 1942, that was the only thing he could understand. And it was written in Sephardic Hebrew cursive in Ladino. And I started to read it for him and he started to become emotional. And it turned out it was his grandfather's last will and testament. And he said, for 70 years, I've been waiting for you to come here to tell me what my grandfather had to say. And that was that obviously had a very dramatic impact on me. And I wondered, well, what would happen if I proactively solicited people in the community to bring me their books, to bring me their documents, to bring me their postcards, anything with Ladino writing on it? And what emerged was a remarkable grassroots uh, collaboration that has produced uh, one of the largest libraries of Ladino material in the entire country over the last 10 years. I mean, we now have, sitting in Seattle, we have more Ladino books from the 17th century to the 20th century than are available at the Library of Congress or even Harvard University. And that is just the result of one community coming together and sharing what we called them, tresoros, the treasures, the treasures of the community. And we have religious texts and we have mystical texts and we have novels and we have, you know, Shakespeare, Gulliver's Travels, uh, Swift, you know, translated into Ladino and you have political texts and you have original novels and you have calendars and you have any genre that you, folk tales, song books, theater plays. None of this is part of the public understanding of what constitutes Jewish literature, nor is it part of the public understanding of what constitutes Spanish literature. It's, you know, it, it fallen through the cracks. And so what we've done is digitized all this stuff, digitized a couple, few hundred thousand pages of material in Ladino, and we are in the process of putting the stuff online to make it accessible so that anybody anywhere in the world can get access they can see what is Ladino, what does it look like? What is the literature? What is the history? They'll be able to see the archival materials. They'll be able to see the text. And if they can't delve into the text themselves, we're going to help them by curating some digital exhibitions and highlight some of the key features of the literature, the culture, and the language. So that's one main project that I'm working on. And another main project that I'm working on in is a history of Ladino-speaking Jews in the United States. And that's a project that I'm look, working on uh, right now on a book, trying to understand how Ladino-speaking Jews who came to the United States encountered the U.S. racial hierarchy, the uh, U.S. immigration and naturalization systems, uh, 
how they encountered other Jews, how they adapted to life in their new environment, what kind of institutions they produced from mutual aid societies to cafes to newspapers to theater troops to political organizations to synagogues and how they uh, imagined once again what their future was like and how those who advocated for the promotion of their culture and their language, how they did so and why ultimately that effort to transmit Ladino as a living language for all occasions ultimately failed to move to the baby boom generation and subsequently. You are one busy professor. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, as you're talking, I'm well aware of the fact that this is in its infancy stage, right? You talk about 10 yeah. years. And so one can only imagine how much larger your treasure trove of yeah. resources in terms of genre, um, written material that you'll be able to collect and, and share with anyone who has access to the internet at some point. Yeah, that's our goal, to expand it. I mean, we'd like to develop collaborations with some institutions in New York, with some institutions abroad, to pool our resources and our materials to make as much of the Ladino cultural legacy uh, you know, available. Because I think it does, I, this is a question you asked earlier that I didn't address, but maybe I could do now about the bridge building potential of, of the language, if that's okay. Yes. Um, because, you know, I, you know, you know, we're in a, we're in a difficult political moment, I think, in the United States over the last number of years. And I think from a variety of different perspectives, and I think what Ladino helps me do is to tell different kinds of stories to debunk stereotypes, like about Jews on the one hand, for example. But uh, when we think about Sephardic Jews, speaking Ladino, we have three different identity categories that don't necessarily always come together, that do come together in the case of Ladino, which are Jews speaking a variety of Spanish coming from the Muslim world. And having those three elements, Jewish, Spanish, or like Hispanic, we might say, uh, you know, there are connections to be made with Latin people as well, and the Muslim world. This is very, very significant in terms of thinking about coalition building, thinking about relationships, thinking about uh, cultural context and bridges. And I think about my kids, you know, and I want my kids to have a sense of connection to this language, not only because it is theirs and it is ours, but also that they should feel a connection to their classmates and their neighbors. You know, they should feel connected to those classmates that are also speaking Spanish. They should feel connected to their Muslim classmates. They should feel compelled to stand up should their Muslim classmate, should their Mexican classmate be the object of derision. They should see themselves also being directly attacked by that because of the shared uh, cultural uh, bonds that that this language, uh, that language provides us with. Um, I see... Ladino as a kind of way of pushing back, a way of resisting the homogenizing forces of American Anglo monolingualism that is like, uh, can be very, very oppressive and can be very, very, very damaging to not only what it did in my family and to my communities, 
culture, and the same goes for Yiddish in many instances, but just in general, that somehow you have to give up your language, your culture, in order to become really American. And I say, I don't think that's the case, and that shouldn't be the case. Absolutely. Um, we always talk about, people say, well, well, why are you bilingual? And the question is, why aren't you bilingual? Right. And this idea, as you said, you don't have to give up something in order to gain. Actually, it's much more rich that's when right. Right, they operate in concert with one another. That's right. So um, in this stifling, in terms of stifling linguistic desire, right, and capacity, we definitely need to, to push back. And I, I appreciate how you are using your family's heritage and your love of language and culture to, um, I think, respond to a difficult time in our country. So um, as we wrap up, right, you may know that our hashtag is speak your beauty. And I'm wondering if you might translate that into Ladino. And when you hear this idea of speak your beauty, what that signifies to you? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, speak your beauty. I don't know exactly if you can directly translate it into Ladino, but you, there are a couple of ways you might you might say it. You'll hear if you sp understand Spanish. You'll this will be very familiar. You could say "habla uh, la hermosa," like yeah. you could say "speak the the beauty, your beauty to to hermosura," or you could use a Turkish origin word that is used in in Ladino. Which you could say "avlalo ferrahli," "iferrahli" is a Turkish origin word that refers to beauty in all of its all of its facets. So it could be aesthetic, it could be uh, in terms of you know appearance, it could be in terms of music. The the music can be ferrahli, uh, and it can be in terms of the immaterial things like uh, you know la alma. You can have uh, alma ferachlia, and so I think that even with this expression that I sort of made up based on your <laughs> your 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 prompt there, you can get a sense of the way in which a Ladino can bring together these different these, uh, these different linguistic components to produ produce something new and ferachli. <laughs> I love it, and. Uh, you know, we always talk about the the joy, strength, and beauty of bilingualism, multiculturalism, and I think that that translation and explanation captures exactly what is at the essence of of the work that we do. We strive to broaden the conversation in terms of bilingualism and multilingualism. And by speaking with you today, Dr. Nar, you definitely have given us. A, a rich education on Ladino and some of the historical ties, both from its European origins and uh, in present day United States. And we look forward to watching more of what you're going to bring forth. And ha sido un placer hablar contigo. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Placer fue mío. Merci mucho. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback, and we appreciate your support. Follow us.
like us, share us, 